We're so glad you're here this morning to worship with us on our first Sunday of Advent. And uh, we want to just continue to, to worship the Lord through studying His Word together this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab that. And uh, if you need a Bible, there should be some hardback black ones there in the chairs around you. You can grab one of those and follow along there if you like. And we're going to turn to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be at today. Um, we're starting into a new series for Advent called Believe. Uh, in the first few chapters of Luke here, but even bigger than that, I'm really excited about this really, um, we are actually starting today probably a two to maybe two and a half year journey through the book of Luke. Um, so we're going to go verse by verse through the gospel of Luke over the next couple years. been wanting to do a gospel with our church for a while now, and so it's like God's saying that now is the time to start that. And so it's going, to be a, it's going to be an awesome long journey, just a picture of who Jesus is and getting to know him better and how we can follow him more. Um, so that kicks off today, uh, but this first section we're going to call Believe as we look at these opening stories of Luke and how they relate to Jesus' birth. So today we're going to be in Luke 1, verses 1 through 25, talking about when belief is shaky. Now, we are officially uh, post-Thanksgiving at this point, which means that the real Christmas celebration can now begin. Um, I don't know how you all do it in your house, but at our house, nothing comes out until after Thanksgiving, okay? Uh, so that started this weekend, and uh, as I mentioned before in previous years, our family, one of our traditions is to watch uh, Christmas movies together. We have like a whole stack, a whole list of movies that we watch, uh, everything from the Nativity Story all the way over to Elf, right? And everything in between uh, that spectrum. Somewhere in the middle of that, uh, you would probably find the Polar Express, and uh, one of these movies that, that I really enjoy, our girls are kind of out on it sometimes, but I like it. And uh, if you don't know the story, if you haven't seen this, it's about a, a little charming boy who has started to lose his belief in Santa. And uh, so the train picks him up and takes him to the North Pole, and the conductor is trying to convince him uh, to still believe in Santa. And eventually they get to the North Pole, and, be, and upon seeing the overwhelming evidence uh, that Santa is real, the little boy once again is able to believe in him. But along the way of that journey, there's a scene that I think is really the most important scene in the movie where the conductor teaches this young boy uh, a, an important lesson that goes far beyond what he's getting ready to see at the North Pole. And in that, he says this. He says, seeing is believing, but sometimes the most real things in the world are things we can't see. And obviously, he's talking here about seeing and believing in Santa, not Jesus, okay? But that principle can equally apply for us as Christians as we think about Christ and the way that we interact with him in this Christmas season. And because I know for many people in our world, maybe even some in the room right now, sometimes, if we're honest, we struggle to believe. We struggle to believe in God, maybe because we can't see him, maybe because we don't hear him, maybe because we don't feel like he's moving in our life, we can't see his presence in the way that he's working, and when life gets really difficult and God seems distant or absent, sometimes our belief can start to get shaky, right, and we don't, we don't really know what to do with that, and so as we start Luke this morning, I want to, to look at the scriptures and see how Christ is going to remind us that when my belief is shaky, God is always steady. When my belief is shaky, God is always steady. And we're going to see that first here in this opening story of Luke. So, 
But before we even get to the first story of Luke, like I said, if we're starting a two-year journey through the book of Luke, like we need some background on what book we're studying and what we're doing here this morning, right? So thankfully, Luke actually gives us a couple verses at the very beginning that gives us an introduction to what we're about to read and study. So let's look at the first couple of verses there to get that introduction in verse 1. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we find out, um, one of the things we need to start with is who's the author of the book of Luke, and uh, the name is in the title. Uh, it was written by Dr. Luke, Okay. Now, Dr. Luke was not one of Jesus' original disciples. He wasn't one of the 12. Uh, he wasn't even an eyewitness to Jesus' life. He wasn't around yet. He actually became uh, Paul's personal doctor and ministry companion partner uh, later on in the book of Acts. So he kind of comes on the scene after the fact, but he's also a careful historian. And he has compiled all the data and the testimonies of all these people, and he's put it here, he says, into a, to write an orderly account of Jesus' life in ministry. That was his purpose in writing this book. And he's writing to a very specific audience that he tells us here, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know exactly who Theophilus is. Uh, we don't find him in any other like major history books or any other part of the, of the Bible. Uh, we can tell by his title, most excellent, that um, he is some type of ruler or dignitary probably. Um, some believe that he might even be the patron who actually paid to for Luke's research and writing and kind of underwrote this whole thing um, because of the purpose of it. Luke says he's writing to him so that he may have certainty, right? So evidently, Theo here had received some teaching about Jesus or Christianity along the way, but he didn't fully believe it yet. He didn't fully understand it. He wasn't all the way in. And so Luke writes an account here for him to help solidify his faith in Christ, to help him believe fully who Jesus was and what he did. And by doing that, Luke also writes to all of us who want to know who Jesus is and believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so all of us are recipients of this work from the book of Luke that we start into this morning. Okay? So that's kind of the intro to the book. We're going to learn more as we go along about Luke and about why he wrote and how it all comes together. But for right now, I want to jump into this first story of the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 5. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced, and they both were advanced in years. All right, first thing we see in the story this morning is this. Number one, when life's circumstances shake my belief, I can worship God in faithfulness. When life's circumstances shake my belief, I can worship God in faithfulness. Now, when Luke starts off in verse 5 here, he starts off with this phrase, in the days of Herod, Okay. That's going to be what we call a historical marker that Luke is giving us to show us that, hey, this story I'm about to tell you, this really happened. 
This is in history. You can trace it back to the reign of Herod in the history books, right? This isn't a myth. This isn't a made-up story. This isn't some... Like, Luke's going to give us all these types of historical markers throughout his book to show us that the story about Jesus is indeed real and worth believing. And so he starts there, but that's not really the focus. He gets to the main characters in the next part. He says, Zechariah and Elizabeth. So all the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, John, they all start with Jesus, right? But Luke doesn't start with Jesus. He starts with Jesus' backstory, right? He starts with Jesus' uncle and auntie. He's like, hey, let me tell you about these guys, right? He has this great uncle named Zechariah who was of the division of Abijah, who was this honorable and faithful line of priests. It was this family that had been faithful to the Lord and faithful to the temple and faithful to leading God's people to worship him for generations and generations and generations. And then his wife, Elizabeth, was a daughter of Aaron. If you know your Old Testament, you know that Aaron was the very very first priest that God himself installed. Like, her line goes all the way back to the beginning. And so they both came from, like, very prestigious families, long lines of faithfully serving God. This would have been, a, it would have been a huge deal to be a part of these families, to have these names attached to you, right? In America, it might be like, like if you were like a Kennedy or, or a Rockefeller, right? Or in, in St. Louis, if you were a Bush, right? Like, like those kinds of names were the names that were bringing... Br- Coming to the table here with Zechariah and Elizabeth. But even more important than their families, look what it says next. They themselves were righteous and blameless before God. What a statement to be written about you in the Bible for all time. That they were righteous and blameless before God. Their lives were ones of personal devotion and faithfulness to the Lord. Now, just to be clear, this does not mean that they were sinless. Okay? Only one sinless person has ever existed on the earth, and that was Jesus Christ. But it does point to the fact that they had no major disqualifying sin issues in their life. Right? When they did sin, they repented, they got it right with God, and they were continuing to track with the Lord. They were blameless and righteous before him. Unlike some of the other religious leaders of the day, who were blameless and righteous in the eyes of men, Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless and righteous in the eyes of God. It wasn't just an external righteousness, there was an internal righteousness to their hearts that they were devout and faithful to the Lord in all these things. It says that they were blameless, they were righteous, this great couple from this long line of priestly families, but they had no child. What? Like, that's a completely unexpected twist in the story for all Luke's original Jewish readers, right? They're like, whoa, whoa, hold on. They expected him to say they're blameless, they're righteous, they're awesome, and therefore God blessed them with many children. That's the way that sentence should have went in their minds. But they had no children because back then they thought that children were a sign of God's favor, right? That that God blessed those that loved him and, and, and followed him with children. And so why were they childish? Of all the people, why them? Obviously, it wasn't because of their sin. They just told us that they were blameless and righteous. And to make matters worse, Luke goes on to say that she was barren, and they were both advanced in years. First of all, I kind of like that. Advanced in years, right? Not old, advanced in years right? Like, we all like to be advanced in things, right? Like, that sounds better. 
in this case, not better. Right? Luke's making it very clear that this situation is hopeless. Childbearing for this couple at this point is impossible. Not going to happen. I'm sure that the two of them had prayed for a child for years upon years upon years, pleading with God, waiting for him to answer, and still nothing. Only to be disappointed year after year. In fact, I think we can tell from later on in the story that they stopped praying for that a long time ago. That's how far past hope they are on having kids. That dream has passed. So much for, they don't even pray for it anymore. That dream has passed, but their faith has not. Right? Despite not receiving what they so deeply desired from the Lord, it says here that they continued to worship Him and follow Him and faithfully worship Him all their days. You see, life's circumstances had broken their hearts, but it had not broken their faith. Their belief remained unshaken. Now, what's hard about these kind of stories, are these are oftentimes the, the stories of faith that go untold. Right? The ones that don't have the nice bow on them at the end. The ones who don't, like, resolve the way we want them to, that we can celebrate and clap our hands about. These are the stories of the faithful saints who might only see the answer to their prayers in the next life or maybe never at all. But they continue to pray, they continue to worship, they continue to seek the Lord. Like that senior saint who prays daily for the salvation of their children and their grandchildren. But have yet to see any fruit. Or maybe that faithful spouse who continues to sacrificially love their unbelieving spouse, but has yet to see any change in their hearts. The single adult who longs for a companion, but continues to pour themselves out, serving the Lord, waiting for him to do what they desire one day. The one left behind by the death of a loved one, asking, how long, Lord? How long? the one fighting against that relentless disease, praying for healing that has yet to come. These circumstances are heart-wrenching. They, they break us. They're painful to walk through. And yet, they're even more painful to walk through if we lose our faith in the midst of them. Because God's the only one who can carry us through things like that. Despite God not answering their prayers, not giving them the child they desired, Zechariah and Elizabeth still believed. They still believed that he was God and that he was worthy of their worship. You know, friends, we need to understand that our circumstances, no matter how hard they are, no matter how bad they are, and sometimes they're really bad, they never change who God is. Circumstances change. We change, but they never change who God is. 
They give us an opportunity to rely on him more, to press in deeper, and to grow in our faith. Our faithfulness to God can remain steady even in hardship because God is still God. And so this first point, I just want to say this. My belief does not depend on what God does, but who God is. That's true faith in the Lord. That's the faith that will last you through this lifetime. Is not in what he does for you, not what you get from him, not the way he answers or doesn't answer your prayers, but who he is, that he is a God who is steadfast and faithful, and we can trust in him. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they knew that. And they continued on, righteous and blameless before the Lord. Thankfully, the story continues, though. Look at verse 8. It says, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord staying on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell upon him. I'm sorry, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Point number two, when God's word shakes my belief, I can trust in God's power. When God's word shakes my belief, I can trust in God's power. Now, it says here that Zechariah was serving with his division. So let me give some context for that for a second, okay? During this time period, there was about 18,000 priests who were serving Judea in their role, okay? 18,000, and they were divided among 24 different divisions, and each division would take uh, two weeks a year to go and serve in the temple, right? One week, and then another week later on. And so in the temple in Jerusalem, he's there with his division. He's serving his week, right? And then they, by lot, they choose who's going to go into the holy place and burn incense before the Lord. Now, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. With 18,000 priests, there were some priests who never even got chosen, right, who never got to do this. And here, Zechariah is there. He's in his week. He gets, his name gets pulled, and he gets to now go into the holy place of the temple before the Lord and burn his, this was the most important day of his life. Most important day. Period. And so he, he goes in, and it says an angel appeared. What? Are you kidding me? Like, I'm here, I'm serving, I'm doing my week, my name gets pulled, I'm in the holy place, I'm like, I'm about, I'm scared that I'm going to do something wrong, and God's going to like smite me right here, and all of a sudden an angel pops up. Zechariah's mind would have been, like, blown right now. 
And it says he was troubled and fearful. So much so that the angel has to tell him, hey, hey, it's okay, don't be afraid. All right, which we see that over and over and over again in Scripture. There's something about angels that freaks people out, right? Because like every person's like scared, and he's like, hey, it's all right, Let's take a breath, we're all good. Okay, so he's like, and, and Zachariah would have known this, and this experience would have told him, like, man, this is for real. This is like from the Lord right here. The angel is speaking to him, and he says, your prayer has been heard. Now, in the Greek, that phrase there is in the aorist tense, which means he's talking about like one specific prayer, not just prayer in general, but there was one prayer he's in, that prayer has been heard by the Lord. And by the grammar, most likely, it was whatever prayer he just prayed when he got into the holy place, right? And since this is like the most spiritually momentous occasion in his entire life, no doubt he would have prayed for the biggest thing he could think of, which would have been the redemption of Israel, right? Like, they're all waiting on this Messiah to come and to save Israel and to do the thing. They've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. Zechariah is in the place. He's going to pray the prayer, asking God to come and to redeem his people. And the angel says, hey, your prayer has been heard. And your wife will bear you a son. What? <laughs> Now Zechariah is extra confused. He's like, I haven't prayed for that in a long time. Like I, that's not what I prayed right now. Like I prayed for something else, and, and now we're, you're talking about having a son. Like He is confused. He's overwhelmed. He is trying to make sense of all this. He doesn't understand it yet. But eventually, he'll come to see that God is actually going to answer both prayers with one miraculous birth. It's all coming together in God's plan. He says, your, son, your wife will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, we know, later on in the story, this becomes John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, depending on your faith tradition. And we're going to learn a whole lot more about him coming up. But right now, the angel starts to prophesy about this son, John, and who he's going to be. Listen to what he says. Imagine, parents, if you were hearing from an angel, like, here, this is who your child's going to be. He says, first, many will rejoice at his birth. Like, I know you and Elizabeth are psyched, but, like, that's nothing. Like, many people are going to rejoice at the birth of this son. And he's going to be great before the Lord. Meaning he will have a specific purpose, a specific calling from God on his life. That's also signified by the fact that God named him. He's like, hey, name him John. Normally the father got to name the son, right? But here God does it because he's like, he's mine. I've got a special purpose for him. And he also says, hey, he can't drink anything, right? Like you gotta, he's got to be set apart for me, for my work. And then he says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Like later on in the New Testament, lots of people get filled with the Holy Spirit. But John is the only one who receives the Holy Spirit while he's still in the womb. And this special feeling for John, it marks a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, right? Like, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the Spirit would come to God's people, he would hover, he would work, he would do whatever, and then he would leave. And he would come back, and, like, he would move around like that. In the New Testament, when we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. He indwells every single believer. And John is the first fruits 
of that new filling of the Holy Spirit that we all get to experience as followers of Christ. And then he says his unique purpose will be that he will turn many in Israel to the Lord their God. And we're going to see that as we walk through the book of Luke. That that was John's purpose, that was John's message the whole time. His whole life, all the way up to his death, he was simply preaching, repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe in God. Turn back to the Lord. Over and over and over again. He had one message, and he just preached it over and over again to everybody. And then he says he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. That phrase right there marks John officially as a prophet of the Lord. Right? He's saying like, hey, and he's not just going to be any prophet. He's going to be the prophet of the Most High. He actually is fulfilling right here the prophecy that we studied this summer in Malachi, right? Malachi 4.6 that said there's going to be one that comes and makes ready a people for the Lord. He's going to come a forerunner. He's going to come before the Messiah and get everybody ready for Jesus. That's John. Like I said, we're going to look a whole lot more at John later in the book. But right here, I want you to look at Zechariah. Needless to say, this is way more than Zechariah could have ever imagined for his son. Not only is he finally getting a son, but he will be instrumental in helping bring salvation to the world. This, no doubt, exceeds his wildest hopes and dreams. And even though... I'm sure he is ecstatic at the idea. Look how Zechariah responds. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. First of all, props to Zechariah. That's a veteran move right there. Right? He's like, I'm old, and she's advanced in years. Love you, honey. Right? Like that's, um, Respect for that. But look what he's actually saying here. I hear it, but I don't believe it. I hear what you're saying about a son, about, but, but I don't really believe it. It's not possible. You don't understand. It's too late. We're way past that at this point. It is impossible for us to have a child. You must have got it wrong, God. That's what he's saying. Even with God's own messenger, giving him God's words in person, he still struggles to believe. And the reason Zechariah struggled to believe God's word is because he failed to remember God's power. So many times we look at God's word and we try to figure out how it's going to happen in our power. And we forget that God's word comes with God's power. And so Zechariah couldn't see it. He couldn't understand it. Just think about how many times this has played out in the Bible over and over and over again. Right? I think, go all the way back to Abraham. Right? He believed God's word that God would make him into a great nation. And, and he left his homeland not knowing where he was going. And God did all of it by his power. Joseph believed God's word over and over and over again, even through 
horrible circumstances, he believed and God delivered him and elevated him by God's power. Moses believed God's word that he would rescue his people from the Egyptians and he stretched out his hands over the water and God parted the sea by his power. Joshua believed God's word that he would give them the land and they marched around that crazy city seven days and God brought the walls down by his power. David promised that he would be the next king and he believed God's word and patiently waited for years until God brought it to pass by his power. Even in the New Testament, the disciples, they're scared. They're in the upper room. They don't know what to do. But they believed God's word and they went out and preached the gospel and 3,000 people are saved in one day by his power. Paul goes and plants churches and spreads the gospel all over the known world because he believed God's word about this is what I have for you, and he went out by God's power. So many times God says something to us, either through his word or through his spirit, and when he says it, it seems impossible to us. We're like, Lord, I, maybe for somebody else, but for me, that's not, that's not going to happen. Right? He's like, hey, I want you to go share the gospel with those atheist neighbors of yours. <laughs> nope. Not going to happen. Right? I, I, want you to, I want you to start giving 10% of your income back to me. 10%? Seriously, Lord? I want you to go plant a church. In another city, seems impossible. I want you to pray for supernatural healing for that person in your family. I want you to quit your job, go to one, go to one income in your family, so you can have more time to invest in your kids and in discipling the ones I've given you. I want you to walk away from that relationship that doesn't honor me. I want you to quit that addiction by relying on my spirit coming to me in prayer. I don't know what he's saying to you, but if it seems impossible to us, we have to remember it's never impossible with him. Your power, yes, not going to happen. But God's word comes with God's power to accomplish it. And that is where we have to put our faith. We have to surrender our ways, put our trust in him, and let his power be the thing that does what he's called us to do. So I can always believe God's word because it comes with God's If you're struggling to believe it this morning, if you're struggling to follow what he's told you to do, you can believe it by God's power, not your own.
So go back to verse 18 again, and look what happens next. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Last thing this morning, number three. When my pride shakes my belief, I can rest in God's grace. When my pride shakes my belief, I can rest in God's grace. Again, he says, how shall I know? I'm old. She's advanced, right? And so Zechariah, again, he thinks he knows better than God here. He's like, God, God you must be tripping because this is not possible at this point, right? Like, this is not going to happen. I'm going to need you to prove that to me, God. I need you to give me a sign that this is legit. But that request is an innocent That request comes from a heart of pride in Zechariah, thinking that he knew better than God. Zechariah was the one tripping, not God. And look at the response. It says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you. He's like, listen, bro, you better check yourself. Right? Like, these are God's words straight from his mouth. And if you're going to call cap on that, then you've got a bigger problem coming. I've got, I've got a sign for you, but you're not going to like it. He says, you'll be unable to speak until these things take place. And before Zechariah can even withdraw his request, he's mute. Because he failed to believe what God said. So God gave him a sign, but not the one he wanted. But even in that, I want you to notice here, even in that sign, the sign was actually both God's discipline for Zechariah and also God's grace for Zechariah simultaneously. Discipline in the fact that he rebuked Zechariah for his unbelief, right? Nine plus months of silence to think about who the Lord is, and to learn to trust him and to humble himself before the Lord. But it was also a sign of grace. Because in that season of being mute, it was proof that one day God was going to fulfill his word. And that one day he would have his voice back again. It was the proof that God's redemption plan was still in place despite Zechariah's unbelief. And friends, that's what we need to take home with us today more than anything, is that my unbelief never stops 
God's plan or God's grace. No matter how much I fail, no matter how much I struggle to believe, no matter how much I miss it when he says something to me, even in my failure, it never stops God's plan. It never stops God's grace. He is always faithful to those things. Will it bring suffering in my life if I don't believe? Yeah, sometimes. Will it bring discipline in my life if I don't believe? Yes, sometimes. But God will still fulfill his promises. God will still fulfill his purposes. Because that's who he is. He is always faithful. No matter what I do or don't do. The only thing that changes with my unbelief is how I experience the promises and the purpose of God in my life. It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change what he does. It changes me. And for the contrast of that, just real briefly, look at Elizabeth right here at the end. It says that we have no hint in any of this that Elizabeth ever doubted, that she ever questioned. She was good. She just trusted the Lord. And it says that she conceived and God took away her reproach. She got to rest in the goodness and in the grace of God because she believed he was faithful to his word. When my belief is shaky, God is always steady. Always. No matter what it is that's shaking me up, no matter what it is that's messing with me, God is always steady. And so this morning as we start into Advent, is your belief shaky around something in your life right now? Is there something that's shaking you up? Maybe it's, maybe it's a relational conflict that you're walking through. Maybe it's financial strain on your family. Maybe it's a health issue that you never saw coming and now it's here and you gotta figure out how to walk through that. Maybe it's just loss or grief that you're suffering through right now. What is it that's shaking your faith? Whatever it is, let God's word assure you today that no matter what you're going through, God's always steady. He's got you. He's with you. And if you'll just trust in him, he will carry you through all of it. All of it. Just believe. No matter what it is, no matter what you're getting or not getting, no matter what's happening in your life, just believe. God is always steady. Stand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much for the reminder and the promise of your word, God, that you are steady. That you are always faithful. That no matter what comes our way, God, we can trust in you. That you never leave us nor forsake us. This world, Lord, it may shake us, but you 
never waver. You stand firm and you hold us up through every storm, through every trial. And so, Lord, we're asking today, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to believe that you are steady and faithful no matter what we're facing. Fill us with that hope of who you are. We love you, Lord. And we proclaim today, great is your faithfulness to us. We pray all this in Christ's name.